Hello. Hi, Mom. What do you think folks have in store for this one? Well, his company is wisely. They're focusing on making the restaurant customer experience better and gathering all kinds of data to be able to do that. I could relate to this being a restaurant goer. What was interesting is he said restaurant contacts with the customers are fading because of the delivery services, which of course makes sense when you think about it. Any big lessons for people in terms of crafting the story that were interesting for you? He wanted to get to this narrative early on, sooner than most companies would go for that. And I loved at the end when he praised you for your ability to interact with his team. Why do you like that? Because uh, it shows people like your work and it makes me feel good. (laughs) Yeah, it was nice for me to hear that too. I mean, most of the time they say something nice about you, but I thought this was very nice. Anything else you want to say? I really would like to thank all of the lovely people that put these wonderful comments on about my introductions for you. This is my third career, and they're making it very rewarding for me. Introing these episodes is your third career? Yes. Uh (laughs) (laughs) Uh-huh. I had two good careers, one long one, then this one, if you could call it a career, but it, it occurred to me that that's my only job that I'm doing. Is this a job? I mean, I'm not getting paid, but it is a job. Is this you trying to uh, negotiate? No, absolutely not. But I charge my son for anything. This is The Bigger Narrative. I'm Andy Raskin. In each episode, I talk with a CEO about their strategic narrative, a story they use to power success not only in sales and marketing, but also product development, recruiting, fundraising, everything. And my guest for this episode is Mike Vichick, CEO of Wisely. Wisely helps restaurant chains know their customers better without having to resort to loyalty gimmicks, which, as my mom says, has become even more timely with the rise of third parties like DoorDash. Over 7,000 restaurants now use Wisely to get a single view of the customer across reservations, feedback, marketing, even wait lists. My son and I were recently waiting in line at the Taiwanese dumpling chain Din Tai Fung, and thanks to Wisely, we knew it would be over an hour so we could use that time productively shopping for Legos. Incredibly, Mike bootstrapped Wisely, but when he reached out to me earlier this year, he was ready to grow pretty dramatically. And at the time, if you would have asked everyone in the company then, I think we had 32 people, what Wisely did, and you asked that question on two different days, you would have gotten at minimum 64 different answers. I felt, the team felt, it was important that we were really crystal clear about that because we wanted everyone to row in the same proverbial direction. And I felt like we weren't doing it at that time and adding more people into the mix was only going to exacerbate the issue. So while we were thinking about our growth plans for the year, that quickly became something that was a top priority for me was just figuring out what is our story and exactly how are we telling it? I imagine that's the case for a lot of companies at that stage. Yeah, everybody has a different idea about it. But not every CEO comes to the conclusion, well, therefore, that's a top priority. How did you make that link? Honestly, I thought it was an efficiency play. Like we needed to accelerate the decisions that we were making across the board. For me, it was all about enabling the team to make better, more accurate decisions quicker. And 
that was true in product. You know, what product should we build? Should we build this thing or that thing? Which one's more closely tied to our narrative? How do we sell the product? What questions do we ask during a discovery? How do we build value? How do we market it? How do we talk about it on our website? What are the ways that we, from a customer success point of view, are bringing value to our clients? How do we talk about it with them? How do we educate them and help them perform at a better level? All of those things tie back to the narrative. Again, if we weren't clear on what that was, we were at risk of of misfiring more and more as time went on. So I just felt like it would make sense to do it now. One founder I once spoke to said, it's like, we've had a lot of success, but it was like brute force of the founders. And now I, as the founding CEO, I'm not going to be in every decision. I'm not going to be in the room every time when we're selling. I'm not going to be in every product decision. I want to give other people the North Star to go by when they're making those decisions. It sounds like that's kind of like what you were thinking. Definitely that, although I, I, I would be quick to also point out, it's not just the decisions of everyone else. It's also my own decisions. Because I, I didn't want to make decisions based on like what side of the bed I woke up on or what customer I just talked to. You know, it was very much about articulating where we wanted to go collectively as a company. And it, it helped me hold myself accountable too. So yes, absolutely the rest of the team, but even, even my own decisions and even how I talked with potential investors or the board, it was all those things. I love that that clarification you just made. That's so interesting. So let's talk about the narrative that you came to. Maybe give me a sense of how you were talking about the company before and how you're talking about it now. Yeah, I think the before story was very product oriented. And I think any you know startup has to have a great product in order to scale. But I think it's also a very self-centered view of the world if, if you're just talking about products. So we were doing, you know, kind of the classical, what are your pain points? How do we solve them? How, how are we positioned versus other competitors? What were the kind of pain points you'd hear about from restaurants? Like what were the kind of things they're telling you? You'd hear like, we want to know more about our customers. We want to have more customer data. It's not just the having of the data, but being able to act on it differently. We've got too many different systems and we want to be able to consolidate them, integrate them so that we have one view of our customers. And then there were some more micro pain points in there. For instance, we, we have a waitlist and reservation, but you'd hear things along the lines of like, how does your waitlist quoting algorithm work and things like that. So we had like benefits across the board, but there wasn't like a story arc that tied them all together. Mm -hmm. I remember one thing that I saw in your initial sales deck was there, there were a lot of capabilities. You guys do a lot of things and it was just the different yeah. capabilities in a big set. And yeah. there wasn't yeah. a lot to kind of make sense of them. It was just like, yeah. hey, here's all our capabilities. Let's take you through them. Yeah, it looked like the window to a beautiful mind, Russell Crowe's window, you know, not like I'm not like we're genius at the company, but like, you're right, there was no cohesive thing that tied them all together. And where did you get to? Goodbye transactions, hello customers. So that goodbye, hello framework is Wara used that, uh, Gong used that. Yeah. So before people think that I'm, I'm just now phoning it in by having people just fill in those blanks, I think we went through a lot of different formulations. Yeah and different structures. But tell me about what does that mean for restaurants? Goodbye transactions, hello customers. If you were to talk to any CEO or any board, it used to be all about 
what they call box economics. And and just for people who might not know the restaurant industry, box is a term for a brick and mortar restaurant. Yeah, exactly. And so the metaphor there is you're currently thinking about your business as these kind of boxes. Yeah. So it's things like same store sales, the store level EBITDA, uh, average unit volume. These are all metrics that valuations for restaurant brands get built off of. But it's an output metric. It's something that you don't know that you're going off the rails until you're already off the rails. But now I think you're seeing brands actually start to talk about customer economics, not box economics. And that's things like cohort retention, cohort frequency, honestly, metrics that are more akin to what tech companies use. And that's true through marketing, ops, even from a culinary perspective, knowing which items your best customers purchase. From a real estate point of view, which locations have most of your best customers? So the narrative really does flow through every department of a restaurant brand and helps us talk about what we do in a way that is relevant no matter who you're talking to. I'm not someone who knows a lot about the restaurant industry, aside from you know eating in it, but it's hard to imagine that restaurants never really had this kind of customer focus before. It's interesting because I think restaurants have historically been one of the most customer minded industries in some ways, in the sense that great restaurants knew that it was all about the experience and getting to know Andy and what he likes to drink, what he likes to eat and like, hey, how's your miso soup uh, going, right? Like being able to talk about things that, that you care about. That's how you build a relationship. I grew up as a server and I can vividly remember the point in, in that experience where I learned, I saw it with my own eyes, how important it is to know who the customer is because they tip you more if you remember their name and what they like to drink. And the best people in restaurants knew that. But I think the issue was it wasn't institutionalized. That information never made it out to the rest of the brand. And that's the interesting thing is now that tech can do it, you can take the data from the individual people and make it part of an institutional memory, as I sometimes call it. It just opens the doors for them to do things the way they always thought about it, but at scale in a way that wasn't possible before. It really reminds me of the way that retail shifted. If you look at like a Macy's, even after the age of computers, probably didn't have a customer database for quite a long time. All they cared about was the transactions, like what's going through the cash register, what styles are selling, what colors are selling. But now there's this focus on, well, what is each individual doing? Who are the people who are our best customers in terms of lifetime value? How can we be increasing that? And like you said, that's kind of like the lever toward uh, affecting these larger output numbers, same store sales and all the rest. Exactly. I think the parallels between retail and e-commerce and restaurants are really relevant and more relevant every day too, because e-commerce essentially is online ordering in the restaurant business. So this story, Goodbye Transactions, Hello Customers, how does that play when you talk to to people? Like one could be thinking you're saying like, hey, you don't treat your guests like customers. There probably is a way to say it in a way that comes off in a judgmental or condescending way. But this is a, a concept that restaurants have always cared about. That has not changed, actually. But what is different is that the way they're able to do it at scale across the organization is new. If you are the the CFO of a restaurant brand, every day you get asked by every department to spend more money. And if you said yes to every one of those things, you're going to be negative 
in terms of profitability. So what things should you actually invest in because they drive lifetime value? And now that we're able to do it, CFOs can say, oh, we know that the barista is the number one thing that determines the lifetime value of a customer. So it makes sense actually to invest. They call it a labor investment, not just higher wages. And it's interesting because I think when you look at the industry, a lot of the smaller locations were better at that, Mm -hmm. right? Because they had someone, whether it was a founder or someone that just believed we should pay people more or we should have higher quality ingredients. But as you get to scale, those decisions become more scientific and there was no scoreboard. So I think that is one of the key differences from a, an industry point of view of how this sort of shift in mindset manifests. I remember one of the key things was what we might call a category name. You're competing in a really crowded space of a lot of point solutions. You mentioned you guys have a wait list and reservation system. Loyalty programs are also aiming at know about your customer kind of thing. We settled on customer intelligence. And again, we're using this pattern from Gong and others. But we actually had a whole bunch of candidate names. And I remember you went and started asking customers (laughs) which ones resonated with them. Which one would you want to buy? What were some of the other options and and what made you come to customer intelligence versus some of the others? The runner-up candidate that I actually was the proponent of was customer profitability platform. Because we started Wisely in 2012. And for the first four and a half years, we built three different consumer apps, none of which found product market fit. And one of the realizations that I had during that period was like, what I think doesn't matter. It's what the market thinks. So I I remember having a few different conversations with clients and their whole point was, it's not just profitability. Some of it is we want to be able to just better know our customers so that it informs other decisions Yes, profitability is one potential outcome. And so I think for that reason, it made sense to do it. I'm looking back on it. Glad we did it because it's still, I think profitability is a little too cold. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think of it as almost like too high. It's like, yes, of course, that's the end goal, but it's not descriptive enough. Everything is customer profitability in some way. I remember also there was some pushback from some of the people on your team. I mean, one person in particular didn't like the word transaction. And you also went to customers to ask them, what do you, what what did you actually ask them? Can you remind me? Rather than transaction, we had the word box in there. So goodbye box, hello customers playing on that whole box economics thing we were talking about, which is a common term in the restaurant industry, at least among the large chains. Yeah, and I value working through the process with you because if you look at our customer base, maybe 80% of our revenue comes from mid to large restaurant brands. But 80% of our customers are small. And trying to find something that spoke to all of those audiences was a challenge that we went through. And I remember I even texted a few of our customers. I just asked them a very kind of odd question out of the blue. I said, what's the term that you use for the volume that you do? And, and I, the answers were transactions or tickets was another one that we had talked about. The other one was just like guest counts. We also kicked around, like, should it be goodbye numbers? Like, I don't want to be a number. I want to be a human. Ended up on transactions just simply because that's how a lot of the industry refers to the tickets that get rung through the point of sale. 
A lot of people ask me, where do you get the narrative from? And of course, speaking to customers is always part of the work. And we did other more formal interviews. But the, the fact that you could do this kind of like real time talking to customers was, I just think, hugely helpful in helping your team to move forward. And, yeah. you know, once you say to that person on your team, hey, this is what our customers are saying, it's like kind of nothing else trumps that. One of the, the things that we've also, we talk about internally, it's kind of a cultural thing is the work required to have an opinion. Unless you can make the argument against that as well as the people who believe it, you haven't done the work required to have an opinion. So once we talked about it from the perspective of like, the reason why transactions makes the most sense is because that is the non-human unit that's running through the point of sale. I think people were on board with it. I see that story all over your website now. Our, our marketing team is working really hard to weave it throughout the entire rest of the site. We're making good progress. So that's fun to see. We've also been talking with equity analysts. We've been able to help them think about what are the reports? What are the questions that they should be asking the CEOs and the CFOs about on earnings calls? That it has been a really great hack, actually, um, to start to influence some of those folks. And, and that also was, a, was similar to how they got into the online ordering game, that by getting asked questions on earnings calls. Mm -hmm. What's your plan for online ordering and all those sort of things. So that, that has worked and continues to work really well. You told me you're already seeing this whole old game, new game structure. In your case, old game and transaction thinking, new game customers thinking, act as a tool for sales discovery. Could you elaborate on that? You get to learn more about how the customer thinks with that structure. For instance, there's a slide in our presentation where we say any restaurant brand that isn't thinking this way is at risk. And for two reasons. One, people naturally flow to the places where they get the best experience. The second part of it is there are plenty of other brands that would love to build a first party relationship with the customer, the Grubhubs, the Uber Eats, the DoorDashes, even the other consumer brands that have been around for a long time, like Open Table. Restaurants who are not thinking about customer intelligence are at risk of losing the customer relationship to these platforms yeah. that clearly are. Right, exactly. There's a quote that we have from one of the Sweetgreen founders that says that not owning the relationship with a customer is one of the biggest existential threats facing the industry. And then if you make a couple of those points and you say, I'd love to know from your point of view, what, what are you seeing? And you learn on that first, like within the first two minutes, you learn how they think about that fundamental thing. And it's cool because if you don't know how they think on that issue, you're going to be barking up the wrong tree when you start talking about the actual product down the road. So I, I like that it kind of forces the structure of the discussion, but you can still deliver it in an authentic way. It does require a lot of practice, though. I would say the reps have to really get it. They have to practice it. Got to own it. What about in other areas of your leadership? How does the narrative play a role? So the way that we approach product, Wisely, for a while, has collected feedback. So if someone made an online order or someone had a reservation, you can send them either an email or a text afterwards, getting feedback on that experience. But the way that we looked at that feedback was transactions, actually. And what I mean is like the way we delivered the feedback historically, it was just presented as if it was, you know, Andy Raskin said this, and it had no context about who was Andy Raskin, what did he order, how many times has he been in? Now we're looking at it from a customer lens. Now, when we present the feedback, we're able to tell what is the lifetime value? 
what did Andy actually order? What does he like? And so now you actually have context, not just the feedback of what he said. So if he says the portion sizes are too small and he's a top customer, you might say, oh, that's something that we should like, you know, prioritize. So I think just the light bulb went off as soon as we articulated it that way. I love that example because it also gets right to your differentiation against these kind of point solutions. So there are, I think, other solutions where they'll collect the feedback on Yelp or whatever and present to you like what's happening. But if that's not connected to your intelligence about the customer, then it, you don't have the context to really understand, well, do, do should we care that Andy doesn't yeah. like our cheeseburger? Or, you know, yeah. or does Andy really matter to us? Is he representative of the, yeah. the group we really target? And so I love this because the connection of the narrative and the product, when that's really tight, that lets you really take advantage of that differentiation For even sure. more. Yeah. Truly, because we've articulated the narrative that way, it's something that no one else can do. And it actually is unique. And it was literally right there. We had all the data in our system, but we just hadn't thought of it that way until we started naming it transactions versus customers. Another one is customer success. And I think it has given our customer success team a, a way to frame the conversations that they have with clients so that we can be actual partners, not just vendors. And we can help to educate them on how they should be thinking about the future of their business. For instance, it's not just, oh, you're not using that feature. Do you want to use that feature? I don't want to make it sound like that's how our conversations were before. But I think as you start to have the narrative creep in, it just gives you a more strategic framework for those discussions. For other CEOs who are thinking about articulating a narrative and aligning their team around it, any advice for them? The question that I wondered myself was, do we really need this? And do we really need this now? That was really what I was thinking. And I I chatted with my board about it and my co-founders. And where we came to was, do we want to scale is the same question, actually. Mm, mm, Um, mm. You know, because I, I did feel like I couldn't be in enough places at the same time. You know, I wanted to be in a sales call. I wanted to be in all these places. And I also knew as a founder, you have to fire yourself. You have to like take one hat off and give it to someone who that is what they do. That is their profession. So I think if you're uh, in a situation where you find yourself wishing you could be cloned, the narrative can be your clone. (laughs) I hadn't (laughs) thought of it that way before, but that's, I think that, that certainly has been how it is for us. Anything that I should have asked that that I didn't cover? Uh, you are a master the way that you corral challenging questions and the way you just get people to talk. I learned a lot from that. So that was a nice freebie. So thanks for that one. You mean like uh, during the sessions? You just ask like straightforward and, and relatively you know simple questions around like, what do you mean X? Or could you elaborate on X? Or are you saying this? I, your interview style is, I, I used to watch John Stewart all the time. I think your interview style is similar to his. So that's honestly huh. one of the biggest compliments <laughs> I could give someone. Uh, Thank you. I, I'm honored. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was one bonus. And uh, I, I think there's kind of a natural tendency, especially when the project is over, to like try to go back to the way things were. Not necessarily intentionally, right? Like mm-hmm. there's just a uh, People have spent more time in the pre-narrative world than the post-narrative world. So as they, as they step through their daily activities, 
it's easy to like just skip it. It's funny. I hear this from so many CEOs, like old story backlash where it like a weed comes back in. Yeah. And it's one of the reasons that I I found eventually that this work would be way more successful if the CEO is leading it because I think the CEO is the only one who has that authority to be able to say, wait, yeah. th this is the story we're going to be telling everywhere. I've had to pay attention to like areas where the narrative could be relevant. For instance, we created an employee onboarding program after we finished the narrative work. And in my mind, that's very much tied into the narrative. Like people, when they join the company, day one, they need to be able to tell their significant other or their parent the narrative. Like, what does your new company do? Boom. It needs to be woven into everything and including things that we hadn't even thought of going through this process with you. I feel like I've been a bit of a broken record about the narrative. Oh, here it goes with the narrative again, you know, but like... It's Join the club, fun. man. I feel like it's it's actually a nice thing, though, that it's gotten... I've gotten to be that predictable because that means I think people actually embrace it. I'm sure you can tell I learned a lot working with Mike and from our conversation. For me, the big takeaway is he's using this simple story about a shift in mindset for the buyer about a new ideology, customer focus, not transaction focus, not only as a spiel for sales, but also as the aligner for his team, literally a strategic narrative. The Bigger Narrative is produced and edited by me, Andy Raskin, with music by Stephen Emerson and podcast cover art by Angela May Chen. Carla Borelli inspired the show by telling me I should do it over coffee. Thanks to Mike Vichick, Rachel Boyshaw, Tyler Fellis, Ray Gallagher, Ryan Van Elslander, and everyone at Wisely. Special thanks also to Judy Raskin, Richard Raskin, Emily Raskin, Eli Raskin, and Carol Wasserman. And remember, the company story is the company strategy. Thank you.